Well, good morning and welcome to Almost Spring. I spent virtually all my life in a place where uh, winter was so mild that you really never had spring. There's some benefits to living in a place like that, but uh, it wasn't until I moved to Beijing that I really understood some of those poems that talk about spring bursting forth and color bursting forth. I love that still. This is only my fourth one. So I, I still like that. I still like the gray and the bareness, and, and now I almost feel it inside that it is getting ready to burst forth in green and colors. I look forward to that. Let's pray. Father, we would desire that your word and your truth burst forward in fullness in our lives. And Father, sometimes perhaps in more spectacular, noteworthy events, and frequently, Lord, it may be in a small, quiet voice, where you let us know that, that you are here in stillness. However you would like to work, Father, we would like our words in your word to be available for your spirit to use. In your name, amen. So, how are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing? I think I've asked that question before on a Sunday morning. It's a real question. What do you know that directs your doing? What I'd like to do today, I would like to look at some elements of knowing. I'd like to look at some tools for you to use and most of my talks are really self-help ones. I'd like to give you some truth, some scripture. I'd like to send you home, and you, and God's Spirit, perhaps, can use some of these. And so today, I would like to give some tools that look at four elements of knowledge, not that there are not more, that I think can be useful for healthy and productive questioning of your knowing and your doing. We, we tend to do out of our knowing whatever that is. And so if we had to come up with a title, it would be knowing what not to do. But since, uh, since this is a dissection of knowing, uh, this is a lab exercise. I'm going to talk about it now. You get to go home and do it yourself. So I have laid out some particular lines for you to help make your cuts, just like a good biology teacher. I, I give you those instructions. So, knowing what not to do. Let's look at the first point. Knowing what not to do. This is the boring part of a lab dissection because as a teacher, I just say, yeah, here's the whole thing. We haven't made any cuts yet. What do you see out of this when you observe? Knowing what not to do. Knowing what not to do is a regular component and a necessary component of our lives. There are certain things you shouldn't do, and we need to educate people regarding, yes, that is not what you do. Knowing what not to do. Ten Commandments. 
Now that seems to address that particular issue. The Ten Commandments gives us some things to do. Don't make an image and worship it as God. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't murder. Don't covet. There. That is an element of knowing what not to do. Even in the way that we raise our own children, we realize that um, it is pretty important with certain things that they know not to do that. We, we don't even explain it. Don't get near the oven. No, not at all. Just no, don't get near the oven. We don't care if they understand why. We just say no. Don't go down the stairs. Don't go up the stairs. That's appropriate, especially in life threatening, life-changing instances where the wrong choice could have immediately consequence. There's a place for knowing what not to do. Besides the Ten Commandments, God references that in other ways as well. Ephesians chapter 4, he uh, speaks of things. So I tell you this, and I insist on in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So there is a futile thinking process. That means you think hard, but you don't have all the elements and it has no profit to you. There's one of those available. Don't go there. He goes on and he says, they are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. We also get some clues, as it were, pretty blatant clues. There is a hardening of the heart that comes. There's an ignorance that this hardening comes from. Don't go there with the Gentiles. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of grief. Don't join them in indulging in every kind of impurity. And be careful about losing sensitivity. Losing a precision of emotion and a precision of understanding where you still can discern. And when you lose that, then you tend to turn yourself over to a more blatant sensuality. That, however, he goes on in verse 20, is not the way of life that you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So here is a strong, broad statement of what not to join in with. Ephesians chapter 4 continues and makes other statements to believers. No falsehoods. In your anger, do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. Steal no longer, no unwholesome talk, no bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. No, here it is, rules, blatant, right there. Don't do it. Know what not to do. Don't go here. There's truth there. In fact, if we could summarize that, we may say, stop it. How effective is that with your kids? But it's needed. But yet we also understand if all we do is condition our kids to respond to us saying, no, stop it. We are not equipping them to go out into this world and make any decisions. 
their worlds should not be any broader than the scope of our own little rules. There's a limitation when you live your life according to just knowing what not to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in the Corinth church, and um, they are having divisions, they have factions among them, they have different groups, they're fighting, and Paul gives them reasoning in chapter 1 and 2. He appeals to them in reasoning and thinking, but then in chapter 3, he's got to summarize it, and he just says, Stop the dividing. I wish you could figure this out yourself on the basis of the principle I told you, but you can't. You are so childish, you can't make proper decisions yourself. So I just have to tell you, stop this. So there's an element, and there is a place to know what not to do. The focus of attention in knowing what not to do, though, tends to be what not to do. Focus on anger. Don't be too angry. Don't be malicious. Don't tell lies. That is a very limited focus. So there's a place for this, but there's a broader invitation that we are given also, and that is knowing what to do. We will drop the knots. We're dissecting this. Remember, we're going down to the core. So knowing what to do. You get to know what to do. We can go back to Ephesians 4, and we get to finish what we were saying. We, we had a list of things not to do. Paul goes on and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to speak truthfully. Now, that's the counterpart of don't tell falsehoods. Speak truthfully. He says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Work. Don't steal. Work so you can have something to share. Again, he's offering them something to do. Speak only what is helpful for building others up. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's the counterpart of don't be malicious, don't be rude, don't be angry, don't be mean. So the invitation we are given is to take our eyes away from that which we shouldn't do and be focusing our eyes on the invitation of what we get to do. Hey, be the kind of person that is compassionate and caring, that kind of person. And of course, if you think about this, you realize the direction then that our thinking is going and our gaze is going when we embrace knowing what to do is our direction is going to be turned in more and more, not just to the Word of God. It's going to be turned more and more to Jesus himself. When we speak of knowing what not to do, there's an interesting logical implication of that. Let me give you a specific example. For many years, I, I worked with youth and teenagers, and a common question I received was, Mr. B, did you go and see this movie? Now, I knew why they asked me that. Because they wanted to see the movie, their parents weren't sure, and they thought if I saw it, they could go and tell them and say, Mr. B saw it, and that must make it good. All right. Well, 
I, I knew that, and I didn't see many movies, so that one didn't work for them. Well, then they said, well, yeah, my parents say, but, you know, what do you think? And they would stand there, and it was my job in their minds to convince them the movie was bad. That was the mindset. Well, why shouldn't I see it? Well, it has 13 of these words and 12 of these words. Well, heck, in the locker room at school, I hear more than that every day. That doesn't work. Give me another reason. Convince me why it's wrong for me to see this. And too often, I think we as parents, we as brothers and sisters, we fall for this one. We think it's our responsibility to convince someone it's wrong. That's the danger of this whole mindset there. What if the question is really on the other foot? It took me a lot of years to figure this one out. And so then I could say, um, well, tell me what's good about you going to see this movie. Well, it, I, it, I don't know, it'll keep me off the streets. Uh, it'll, uh, yeah. No, I said, well, you t tell me, you know. Well, if, if you want to talk anymore, come back and tell me what's good about you going to this movie, and maybe, we, maybe I would be interested in that. We are invited to participate in something that is good. In fact, that's the whole mindset that, that we are given. In Colossians chapter 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice where the eyesight is on. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, in your honor and for your glory and for your goodness, I am now going to spend $18 in two hours of my time watching this movie. May this bless the kingdom of God coming to earth. Amen. It's kind of a different form of question. If you try this on people, then they'll come back and say, well, well, what about going to the baseball game? There. How's that bringing glory to God? And whatever they say to you, excellent questions. Embrace that. Because you and I both need that reminder, too. Well, no, I'm just going, this is an easy movie. Or, no, there's nothing wrong with this activity. And yet the question still falls on us. So then how does this relate to God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven? How does this relate in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Occasionally I'd give an assignment and I would say, describe three ways you can drink orange juice in the morning to the glory of God. And the response was, like, I don't know, um, I could give thanks for it. Okay, that, that's one way. If you leave the question there long enough, they said, well, this morning there was only enough for one cup, so 
I poured it and drank it right away. I guess I could have left that for my brother. Ah, there. There's a way of looking at the orange juice in the morning and how that could be used for the glory of God. Mark chapter 12, we visited this before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's invitation for you to look upward, as it says in Colossians. This is God's invitation to say, hey, Craig, how would you like to participate in my goodness today? This is a completely different atmosphere than how would you like to participate in not sinning? How would you like to participate in my goodness? Well, we'll continue our dissection number three, from knowing what to do to knowing to do. As we continue narrowing this down, knowing to do. The reading this morning was from Matthew 7. It was talking about a wise man and a foolish man. Everyone who hears the words of mine and put into practice is a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams went up, the wind blew, and the house stood firm. Everyone who hears the words of mine does not put them into practice is a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the stream rose, the winds blew, and the house fell down. Just want you to know, catch this. Both houses were identical from what you could see. They both were constructed of very good wood, excellent wood, the right wood. These two men both heard the truth. They both believed the truth. They both accepted the truth. They both said yes to the truth. But one went home and acted on what he heard. And the other went home rejoicing in what he heard. He went home agreeing with what he heard. Oh, yeah, this is what the Bible says. But he did not put it into practice. That's the foolish man. It's hard to tell among us who of us are in a little foolish stage of life because we're all here. Most of you probably agree with most of what I say. You say amen to the Bible. And yet the danger of being foolish, it really has nothing to do with doing bad things. The only opportunity for foolishness only comes when you hear the truth and then you don't act on it. You cannot be this kind of foolish if you don't come to church and never read your Bible. I guess that's an option for you. If you don't want to be a foolish man, then have nothing to do with God. Or perhaps there are better ones. Matthew chapter 21, a short parable of two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go in the work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? A little caution maybe with our words, what we agree to, and enthusiasm, sure, I'll do this. Yeah, I'll pray for you regularly, continually for the next year. It's an invitation to, to say what we mean and mean what we say and act on it. For me, it, it's, it's a skill I need to grow in. Don't say what I will not do. You know what? I'll pray for you right now. I can do that. 
we can get awfully sloppy here. Speaking of sloppiness, one that also hits us in, in a marvelous way in Ezekiel 33. Longer context here, and, and, but all I'm looking at is the attitude of people after they hear truth. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And again, we're all here. We probably sang words of love this morning, but I don't know where hearts are. In what way might you be interested in unjust gain? Ezekiel goes on and says, Indeed, to them, you, Ezekiel, the prophet, are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. What could be wrong with a great worship time? What could be wrong with songs of love? What could be wrong with good music? What could be wrong with truth that is being sung? For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. This is the danger of hearing, accepting, agreeing, participating, being warmly moved, and yet, you don't do. Knowing what not to do, knowing what to do, knowing to do, we're stripping this down. Some of you math wizards are thinking, okay, what's left to get rid of? Well, we're down to knowing, and I'd like to put in, not to take away, but I would like to put in something implicit when it comes to knowing after we take all these others. We have an opportunity to know Him. To know Him. What about those Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah. Well, guess what? They, they're helpful, maybe, to keep you alive and to not to keep you from sinning, encouraging you not to sin, but there's something much more deeper why God gave them to us. How could God more explicitly express who He is and His character and His passion than to describe Himself to us through the Ten Commandments? I, I am the only God, and, and what that really means, I'm going to tell you in love, don't worship any others, not one, none. I love communion. I experience communion in the Trinity. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. And, and you know what I did? I gave you this precious gift so that you could image forth this, this beautiful community inside, and it's called marriage. I hate adultery, not because it tends to ruin families and cost a lot to kids. It does. But God says, I'm the God who makes commitments. I want to make a commitment, and when I say you're mine, that means you are, and I don't go back on that. That's the kind of God we have. God loves truth. He loves truth. Truth can be so painful to me, 
But God is a lover of truth. When I say the truth, God says, well done, I love truth. But yes, there might be pain in the truth. There might be consequences for me. And God says, you worship me by confessing the truth, Craig. I love truth. Do not covet. What is he saying? He's saying it's an invitation to not need to covet because everything you desire you find in him. That's the kind of God he is. This is not the taskmaster saying, don't covet. This is the loving father who says, you know what? Let, let me tell you, if you really, really know me, the more you get to know me, the less you are going to be desperate for things out there. This is the God who invites you to know him. But to know him is not just an emotional experience. It involves that. Second Timothy chapter 2 talks about some effort. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. If, if you would like to know him, you need to work at it. How do you work? By reading the Word of God, by understanding the Word of God, by studying it, by struggling with it, by wrestling with it. An approved, skilled workman. There's a lot of things that's hard to understand on the surface. Yes, that is, God says, absolutely. But could it be any other way when His Word is what invites us to know Him who is transcendent and utterly unknowable except for the bits and pieces he reveals to us that we can understand. We would expect that. Second Peter 3, Peter is talking about an experience. He's speaking of Paul. He says he writes this way in all his letters, speaking to them about such matter. Some parts of his letters are hard to understand. Paul is hard to understand. There's a lot of chapters that he writes. They're just hard to understand. And if you really would like to understand those, which means you really would like to understand God, which is, God, why did you put it this way? What do you mean? Esau, I've hated. Jacob, I love. What, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Workmen get to understand that. But more than just effort is needed. Hebrews chapter 5. And again, the writer of the Hebrews, and, and I'm pulling this out, he is... He is describing how Jesus Christ is better than everything the Jewish system had, than the law, than the high priest. He's describing that. And he brought in an Old Testament character called Melchizedek, and he says, now I'm going to talk about him. All right, so this is hard stuff. But then he stops, and he says, we have much to say about this. This is tough stuff about God, deep stuff. But it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. I tried something of limited value with a youth group. I said, you know what? We're going to recite our songs instead of singing them. You know songs are kind of dry if you just recite the words. But it's interesting. The content is there. But it required great effort to say those words because it was not presented in a really a palatable way. 
The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, in fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer is just saying, there are some more deep things I want to take you about Jesus. But i got to say something here. You guys aren't really trying to understand this. You really don't have a competency of wrestling with Scripture. You really don't study this. You don't really study what I've just said enough to move on here. In fact, the discernment, solid food, is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And this good from evil he's talking about includes moral good from evil. What kind of business practices are good? What kind of movie and television watching would be good and not evil? That's included. But he also is saying your lack of understanding of Scripture, your lack of wrestling with it, of uncovering it, of studying it, is keeping you also from understanding the good that is in the very character of God. Your poor choices, your lack of thoroughness of study, your lack of thoroughness of a godly lifestyle is getting in the way of you understanding these deeper things. Things. Well, Paul, we'll finish our section in Philippians 3 when it comes to knowing him. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now, if we just stop right there, probably most of us would say, what does it mean to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering? What does it mean to become like him in his death? And what does it mean to somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead? And I think what this is saying is, would you like to know? If so, put on your workman clothes. Put on your approved workman clothes. Open the Word of God, study it, and wrestle with it. Not that I've already attained all this or have arrived at my goal, Paul says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So this is what we're left with. We, we know a lot of things. There's a lot of us here that have a lot of knowledge. Probably a lot of it is accurate. So now the question is, what are we going to do with that knowing? May you use some of these questions and some of these tools to look at your doings, both some that maybe are wrong, some that maybe are in a gray area, and some that are marvelous doings, 
and ask yourself, and, and what do I know that leads me here? And ask yourself, what other things do I know that don't seem to lead to any doing on my part? We are invited to love God with all our soul, with all our heart, with all our mind. That's an invitation to participate in a relationship with God in which He is loving us and we are believing that and living in His love and uncovering in His Word and seeing around us His presence. May our knowing result in our doing, result in our looking at the good that we are invited to and result in us coming to know more deeply day by day, who Jesus Christ is. Father, we take what we know, we take your truth, and many of us here understand a lot of it. Father, open our eyes. May your spirit work in our hearts to show us where we have mental agreement that something is true, but yet we do not act on that. Show us that, Father, abruptly if needed to catch our attention. And Father, in areas of perhaps past where we, we needed to focus on not doing something, would, would you lift up our eyes and so we could see you and see what you invite us to? And all of these other enticements would be displaced because of what we get to see and experience in you. We ask this in your name and according to your power, Lord. Amen.